Before we begin our study tonight, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for your doctrines, and thank you for your people who take them seriously. Lord, we realize this particular doctrine is neglected, and in fact, it's attacked. But I am grateful that you have given us a church where people look at the scriptures and just base their faith on what the scriptures teach. We pray we'd always do that. We pray you'd bless our time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, of course, one of the reasons why, and we said this last time, people deny the existence of hell is because it doesn't fit with their concept of God. And these people are called merciists by Dr. Lewis Berry Chaver. I think that's a good term for them. These are people that really can't fathom the idea of the love of God and the mercy of God permitting someone to go to hell. The problem with the merciest is, as Chafer said, they have uninstructed minds, and what they're basically doing is they're picking out just a couple of attributes and neglecting at least 15 other attributes that God reveals about himself. You can't do that. If we're going to take the whole counsel of God, we must analyze everything God teaches us about himself. And so these people that don't like the doctrine of hell, they want to emphasize love and they want to emphasize grace and mercy and forgiveness, but then they neglect 15 other attributes, such as the holiness of God. We talked about that in great detail last time we were in this study. The holiness of God demands that there's hell. God is a holy God. He cannot in any way be connected to anything that's sinful or evil, and he must punish it. Then we said also the righteousness of God. God is a God who's a righteous God, and righteousness demands you judge evil. Then we said thirdly, the justice of God. God cannot let some child molester just come before him and say, okay, just go live in heaven. Or some terrorist that's out there killing and murdering innocent people. He's not a God, if he's going to be a just God, that's going to just say, okay, that's fine. Now that we're out of life, you can just go on and live with the people who love my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't going to happen. The justice of God will not permit that. Then we said, fourthly, the fair judgment of God demands hell. God must avenge evil, and if he's going to be fair and he's going to be a fair judge, it demands that there is a hell. We said, fifthly, the sovereignty of God demands hell. Sixthly, proper praise of God demands hell. If we're going to worship God for who he reveals himself to be, we have to worship a God who is a righteous, holy, majestic God who is not connected in any way to sin. So proper praise of God demands hell. Now the seventh attribute that we come to tonight that you may find a little surprising, but the love of God demands hell. The love of God demands hell. Now the love of God is and write this in your notes. The love of God is a holy love, a perfect love. You can't water this down and twist it to be something that people think or imagine love is. The love of God is a perfect, holy love. And if you go to Romans chapter 12, I'd like you to do that for just a minute. Romans chapter 12. And we get an interesting statement here about love. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, what we read in Romans chapter 12 and verse 9 is, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So what we would conclude from that is that God's love 
demands a right hatred of things that are evil, an abhorrence and hatred of evil, or it's hypocritical love. That's what you take away from that. Let love be without hypocrisy. Hate or abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. So if we're going to love in a way that God loves or understand the love of God, then the love of God is also connected to hating. We are to hate that which is evil. And we are to do that continually. I mean, that's what the love of God will do. It will never stop hating what is evil. And so therefore, a person who would reject the Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of salvation that he paid the price for is going to get before a God who has rejected his great love gift of his own precious son, that person is going to be in hell burning in fire forever and ever because they've rejected the love of God. Now, we can't possibly begin to appreciate the love of God until we understand the provision that he made for us that would enable us to escape condemnation. I'd like you to go to, as long as you're open to Romans, go back to Romans 5, Romans 5, and verse 8. We read in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now there's the ultimate demonstration of the love of God in that he permitted his own son, his own sinless son, to come here and die for us and take our place. We also know, if you back up to John chapter 3, if you would please, John chapter 3. And we read in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, before I read this verse, in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, we read that love rejoices in truth. In 1 Corinthians 13, it's the great love chapter, and it describes God's kind of love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, it says, love rejoices in truth. Now, when you read John 3, 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son, in the case of not believing in the Son, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on a person who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If love rejoices in truth, the truth is a person who does not receive the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior is going to experience the wrath of God forever and ever. So, what the merciest doesn't understand is that the love of God actually demands hell because there must be a recognition of the fact that his son out of his love pays the price for sin and a person who just says fooey on that and rejects Jesus Christ as savior is going to experience the wrath of God in its complete working out of the attribute. So the seventh attribute is the love of God that permitted his son to be crucified demands hell. The eighth attribute is the eternality of God that came up with an eternal plan demands hell. Now, God is an eternal God. We can establish that from multiple passages of scripture. Let's just do that. Go to Genesis 21. Let's go to the first book of the Bible, and we can establish that in Genesis 21. There are multiple texts of scripture. You get this in theology proper. The eternality of God is so critical to his person. But in Genesis 21:33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. He's an everlasting God. 
God rules forever. God is eternal. We know that. Now, because God is eternal, that means he is without end. In fact, God's without beginning or end. But when we say that something is going to live forever, what we mean is something is going to live without end, never going to end. It's going to live forever. So the eternality of God is connected to every human being and because every human being who's on this earth has been made in the image of God. And one of the attributes of this is an eternal feature to the image of God, which would indicate when a person leaves this body or leaves this earth, they're not going to just be obliterated. They're going to go someplace to live forever. That's what eternality demands. If we're made in the image of God and we have an eternal spirit, then what that would indicate is the moment we leave our body, we're going to relocate to some place where we're going to live forever. Now, I want to have us look at some, some passages of Scripture. And to me, these are just simple passages of Scripture that one who denies hell is going to have to be forced to answer. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And notice verse 41 of Matthew chapter 25. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Drop down to verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, it's pretty clear that when a person leaves the body, they're going to go to someplace forever. That's what that says. They're going to go to someplace forever. If the person's a believer in Jesus Christ, verse 46 says, they're going to go to eternal life. If they're not a believer in Jesus Christ, they're going to go to eternal punishment. That's what verse 46 says, which we learn in verse 41 is eternal fire. Now, how do you dance around that? I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, here is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is very much aware of this place that exists, and he's telling people, those who don't believe in him are going to eternal punishment, eternal fire, which means if it's eternal, it doesn't end. It doesn't end. So a person doesn't go to hell and then get a chance to get out of there, or go to hell and it's just obliterated, they burn up. They go to a place where it doesn't end. Go over to the book of Mark, if you would, chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And it's talking about the people who reject the Lord and they had all kinds of excuses. And he says in verse 43, we've looked at this before, it is better for you, verse 43, to enter life crippled than having your two hands and go into hell into unquenchable fire. Verse 44, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What do you do with it? If you take that language literally, you have to conclude that when a person dies, there's a place they can go that is a place of fire. And people try to manipulate this by saying, well, they'll go to fire, they'll be burned up. But then you have the statement where the worm doesn't die. Now, a worm is the lowest thing on the ground. So if something's going to burn up in hell, it'd be a worm. 
But if the worm's not going to die, you can be sure those who are cast into this burning fire are not going to die either. If a worm isn't going to die, then the human's not going to die. So a person who is going into this place of hell is going into a place that's ordained by an eternal God. They're going to be someplace forever. Then I'd have you go over to Revelation 20, if you would, please. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And in Revelation chapter 20, just a couple of verses, verse 10 And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now that doesn't sound to me like you're burning up, does it? They're going to be tormented there forever and ever. Drop down to verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the people who did not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's how you get written in the book of life. We saw that earlier in the book of Revelation when we went through it. A person believes on the Lord, they're in the book of life. If a person is not in the book of life, they're thrown into the lake of fire. We learn in verse 10, the lake of fire is a place where they're tormented night and day forever and ever. So what we would say to a person is that the doctrine of the attribute of the eternality of God, the eternality of God, which demands that he is always in existence, he creates humans that are made in his image, they're always going to be in existence somewhere. They're here for a while on earth, then they leave the earth, and they're going to be in existence somewhere forever. And the two options of where they're going to be is going to be either in everlasting life or everlasting fire. They're not going to escape that. That's where they're going when they leave the body. The eternality of God demands hell. Now, there's a ninth attribute that demands hell. It's the immutability of God. The immutability of God demands hell. I want to have us go to a couple of passages of Scripture, and let's go to Malachi 3.6, if you would, please. We read in Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. There's the statement, I, the Lord, do not change. Go to Hebrews 1, if you would, please. Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, and I want to draw your attention to verse 12. Hebrews 1, 12. All right. And like a mantle, you will roll them up like the garment. They also will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So we get in that statement concerning God, he's the same, and his years will not come to an end. So we get immutability, and we get eternality in that one verse. Now, the thing of it is, is that... God is not going to budge one inch on his promise that someone who doesn't believe in the Lord is going to burn in fire. People need to understand this about God. When they get before the Lord, there's going to be no sentimental slop in God's courtroom. It isn't going to work. God will not show partiality. He'll not be bought out of some decision. God makes it very clear in the scriptures that he will base things on truth. He's not going to budge one inch on this. In fact, the attribute of immutability means that if he promises that he will cast Christ's rejectors into eternal fire, he can't all of a sudden go, whoops, I'm going to change my mind. It isn't going to happen. If he makes the promise that someone who rejects his son 
in this great grace love gift that he gave to all humanity, all they have to do is believe in him and be saved. If they reject that grace gift and get before the Lord, he is not going to change his mind about where they're going to spend eternity. Immutability won't let him do it. Because it is at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where all of the legal demands are met. And this is so important. You know, there's the statement that says, Enter into his courts with praise, Psalm 100. Enter into his courts with praise and thanksgiving. Courts. Well, now we're talking about certainly walled-in courtyard around the temple area. But when you think of entering into the courts of God, you're thinking, boy, this is no light place to be here, going into the court of God. And to go into the court of God having rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, is to go in and you're going to be sentenced by a God who's immutable. He's not going to change on this. People can cry and weep and mourn and mope all they want. It isn't going to change his mind. He's very clear on this. I give people opportunities. Now's the accepted time to believe in my son. If they don't believe in my son, when they leave their body and go into eternity, I will not change on this. They're going to burn an everlasting fire. Now the... Tenth attribute is the omnipotence of God demands hell. The omnipotence of God. God is all-powerful. I want to have you go to a verse in Luke chapter 12, if you would. Luke chapter 12. And the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was here, brought this point out. Because he wanted people to stand in awe of the power that God has. And in Luke chapter 12... And verse 5, we read, these are the words of Jesus, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, what we learn from that is a lot of theology, interesting theology. First of all, the one who ultimately has sovereignty over when a person dies is God. He's completely sovereign over the moment of when a person is born. He's completely sovereign over the moment of when a person dies. So God is completely sovereign over both of those moments in a person's life. What we also learn from this verse is that God is to be feared because God has power and authority to cast someone into hell. In other words, the omnipotence of God demands hell. To shortchange God in not admitting his omnipotence, his power, is to really shortchange your whole doctrine of God. Because this is who God reveals himself to be. I have complete power, I have complete authority over every human. Now God is the only one with this authority. Man can't overcome God. Satan can't overcome God. Angels can't overcome God. God is the one with this authority. He has the power to kill people. He has the power to cast people into hell. And so the omnipotence of God is an attribute that demands hell. Now, people that just get hung up on the love of God and the mercy of God, they're neglecting all these other attributes that God reveals about himself. Now, the 11th attribute is the unity of God demands hell. I want to go through four texts of Scripture. The first one I'll take you to is Matthew 28, 19. I think this is important to talk about this unity of God for a second. Matthew 28, 19. I'm going to give you four references here. In Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, not names, 
in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we know right there you have three members of the Trinity named in Matthew 28, 19, and there's a unity in this challenge to go out to the world. Go over to 2 Corinthians 13. 2 Corinthians 13. And verse 14. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14. And we read in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Again, there's a unity here in God, a triunity. You have one God, but you have three distinct persons here. You have the Lord Jesus Christ, you have God the Father, and you have the Holy Spirit. Go over to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 and verses 4 to 6. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in the hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all. So you have one spirit, one Lord, one God the Father. What do we have here? We have a unity amongst the Trinity. One other text I take you to is 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, we read, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So there again you get a glimpse of the Trinity. They're functioning in harmony. They're functioning as a unit. Now the entire Trinity is involved in saving a soul, the entire Trinity is involved in the plan of salvation. The entire Trinity is involved in heaven. And the entire Trinity is involved in the plan of condemnation. So a person who gets before the God of the Bible, who has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, is up against three members of the Godhead. All three members of the Godhead are unified in the doctrine that they've been teaching about the fact that there's this place of fire in which God will allow people to burn forever and ever who reject his son. So it's not just up against my opinion versus your opinion. A person who leaves their body, depending on where they're going for eternity, they're up against the whole triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're a unit. And they're all involved in the sentencing that will be handed down to the individual. Now, the twelfth attribute is an attribute that most people just don't even admit. The hate of God. The hate of God demands hell. I actually, years ago, when we were in Idaho, had a couple. We were teaching the attributes of God, just as Mr. Kelly does in doctrine. He goes through these attributes of God in theology proper class. And we were teaching on the hate of God, and this couple made an appointment to come into the office, and they walked in, they sat down, they said, we just can't accept that God hates. So I opened my Bible to, and I'll take you to some passages here in just a second, I opened my Bible to a passage, and I handed them the Bible, said, will you read that and tell me what it says? They threw the Bible down, threw the Bible right on the floor, and they said, oh, we know you know the Bible, I'm going, well, isn't that the point of this? I mean, the whole point of you being here is because you're questioning something that is in the Bible. They did not want to admit the attribute of the hate of God. 
But I will tell you, based on the scriptures, there are things that God hates. I will also tell you, contrary to what you may hear in other places, there are people God hates. And I know that that little nifty saying that people have God hates the sin but loves the sinner, there's a sense in which that's true in the sense that God made a provision for sinners and that he put Jesus Christ on the cross. But there are also passages where God aims his hate straight at people, straight at individuals, and he doesn't say, I hate their sin but love them. He actually says, I hate them. So let's go to Hosea chapter 9. Hosea chapter 9. In Hosea chapter 9, we'll read verses 15 to 17. Here's what we read in Hosea 9, starting at verse 15. All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. I came to hate them there because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All of their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him, and they will be wanderers among the nations. Now he says right there, I came to hate them there. Go back to Psalm 5, if you would. Psalm chapter 5. In Psalm chapter 5, verse 4. We read in Psalm 5, verse 4, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Now, he doesn't say there, I hate the iniquity. He says, I hate all who do it. I hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors, abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Now, I'm not the one that's making this up. This is right in the text. Who's the object of the hatred? The people doing it. The people doing the evil. They're the object of the hatred. Now let's go to Psalm 11. Psalm 11, verses 5 and 6. We read in verse 5, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. But upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Now you tell me what that says. It tells me God has an attribute of hate. Do you think for one second he's going to allow a Christ-rejecter, God-mocker, Bible-hating person to come live in heaven with him forever? Uh-uh. That isn't going to happen. The fact of the matter is this attribute of the hate of God is something that would indicate he must have hell. There has to be hell as an outworking of that very attribute right there of people who have just made a mockery of him. God's hatred is a hatred, by the way, that's not irrational or overly emotional. It is rational. It is emotional, but it's reasonable and it's volitional. And when God chooses to hate something, it's always just and right and holy and perfect. And he makes it clear that his hatred demands that there is a place where he casts these people who are the object of his hatred away forever. In other words, God's perfect hatred demands hell. See, the people who want to make up their concept of the love of God and not actually handle it in the way that God reveals it to be, they overlook all these other attributes. We're going to have to stop here tonight because our time is gone, but they overlook all of these other attributes. They just pick a couple attributes. They actually form their own God in their own mind. They don't want the God of the Bible to reveal 
who he is and what he is, so they invent a God that's consistent with the way they think. Well, God isn't like that. God's ways aren't our ways. We want to raise our level to God, not bring God down to us. All right, our time is gone. I want to thank you for coming out tonight. We have a tremendous day planned for you on Sunday with a very interesting passage in Romans and one of the most interesting ones you'll see in Zephaniah Sunday night. Thank you for coming. Good night. The Lord bless you.